This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The November 2nd election results in a handful of races around the country were seen as a warning sign for the Democratic Party. In Virginia, Democrat Terry McAuliffe lost to a Trump-backed Republican Glenn Youngkin for the governor's race. And in New Jersey, incumbent Governor Phil Murphy barely held on to his seat against a GOP challenger in a race that was expected to be a much easier win. Elsewhere, Republicans made inroads in smaller offices and on some school boards, where the latest culture war over critical race theory is shaping up. Days after the elections, House Democrats, together with a handful of Republicans, passed President Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, decoupling it from the Build Back Better bill. Half a dozen stalwart progressive Democrats voted no on the infrastructure bill. Joining me to help make sense of the past week and what it means for the future is my guest, John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine and host of the podcast Next Left. He's a contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times and associate editor of The Capital Times. He's also the author of numerous books, including Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse and The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. He's a frequent guest. Welcome back to the program, John. It's great to be with you, Sonali. So first, let's start with the election results before we get to then what happened with the two bills. Uh, what? How do you assess, looking broadly, at what these elections mean for Democrats? We know that you know it makes for good headlines to say, oh, the Democratic Party is in big trouble. But is that really the case? It's in a bit of trouble. Uh, and I think that people have to be honest about them, or honest about it. Uh, the results overall were not good for Democrats. Uh, it wasn't just in uh, Pennsylvania, in Virginia and New Jersey, which clearly saw setbacks for the Democratic Party. It was also in places like Pennsylvania where uh, the Democrats lost a very important race for the state Supreme Court and also a lot of other judicial races down ballot and in a number of other spots around the country. So it was a bad night. But uh, I think that as we have often discussed, our media doesn't know how to cover politics in America. And so as a result, it, it tends to cover gossip. And Tuesday night was sort of a, a classic example of this. Uh, you often criticize the media for covering politics as a horse race. But imagine if there was a horse race where you called it before uh, you've even gotten through the final stretch, before you've even got to the finish line. That's what happened on Tuesday night because Tuesday night produced a lot of uh, very poor results, initial results for the Democrats. They were looking very, very weak in Virginia. And also it looked like Governor Phil Murphy might well lose in New Jersey. They put that together and created a, a scenario that, wow, this is a complete rebuke for the Democrats. Then they threw on the result of the uh, vote on policing up in Minneapolis and determined that it was also a rejection of a lot of progressive ideas. And suddenly you had this whole narrative that got going. And, and the weird part is it kept going, even though when the numbers came in, the results pointed in a somewhat different direction. To give you an example, uh, Terry McAuliffe did lose in Virginia and lost you know, quite badly because this is a state where uh, the Democrats have been doing very well. But Phil Murphy didn't just win in New Jersey, it looks like he'll win by 
roughly 70, 75,000 votes, and that his percentage of the vote in New Jersey will be better than that of Glenn Youngkin, the supposed big winner in Virginia. In addition, Murphy in New Jersey became the first Democratic governor to be reelected since 1977, the first Democrat to win in the first term of a Democratic president in a governor's race in New Jersey since Jimmy Carter was president. So it's a little bit more of a mixed result there. And then also, just to give you one other quick example, you know, we talk a lot about what happened in Minneapolis. It's important to understand that in Minneapolis, 44% of the people voted for a sweeping reform of policing that would replace the traditional police department with a public safety agency. That's a, that's a very, very large amount of support, a very substantial level of support. And then when we look in other places like Philadelphia and other cities, as well as Austin, Texas, where they had a referendum on increasing the size of the police department and they voted it down 68% to 32%, what you realize is there's a mixed result on this. There's a lot of support for reforms in policing and a lot of support for um, a rational balancing of how cities spend their budgets rather than you know moving this money overwhelmingly toward the police department. So uh, a mixed result, one that Democrats shouldn't celebrate, they shouldn't be popping champagne corks and say, oh, we did great, because that was not the case. But also not a result that tells you that there's this overall rejection of all Democrats or frankly of progressive ideas. In New Jersey, I understand that the Republican nominee for governor, Jack uh, Chetarelli, uh, is refusing to concede. Um, and then, yes. of course, the Virginia um, Republican who won Glenn Youngkin, uh, he uh, seems to have taken on a little bit of the Trump playbook, although he's not explicitly endorsed Trump, but he seemed to take a lot of the kind of race baiting tactics. In both cases, there seemed to be this sort of Trumpian, you know, approach. I, I won't concede even though I lost. I I'll make it all about race. What do you think? Well, uh, look, there's a lot of stuff going on here that relates to Trump. And uh, you are right about the New Jersey result, uh, the refusal of the Republican nominee there to concede at this point is absurd. There is no question that Bill Murphy has been reelected and he's been reelected by a comfortable margin. Remember, he's winning by more than Glenn Youngkin is winning by in Virginia. So, of course, you're at a point where uh, the results should be accepted. You can you know, grumble about, you know, voting systems and slow counts and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it's time for a concession there. Hmm. Now, as regards, uh, but I, but just to close out that thought too, I'll, I'll warn that I think this is going to become pattern everywhere. Uh, anytime there's a race that, that is even in the, in the realm of being close, I think Republicans are going to adopt this, you know, stop the steal kind of language and approach. And that's a really, it's a really dangerous thing for democracy. It's something we have to be conscious of. But um, I do think that there's some bigger lessons out of Virginia. And it's very notable that in Virginia, uh, Glenn Youngkin tried to distance himself from Trump in a lot of ways. He ran right. more as a suburban dad than a uh, Trump, you know, a classic ranting Trump Republican. But the way that he kept the base on board, the, the Trump base on board and the far right or at least right wing voting base on board was by talking a lot about critical race theory. And frankly, um, you know, operating on an incredibly false premise, the argument that somehow 
schools are teaching people or teaching kids uh, something that they shouldn't know or something that they shouldn't learn. I mean, this is, wasn't really an attack on critical race theory. It was an attack on an honest teaching of American history. You know, they're saying, oh, no, no, we don't want to, we don't want to look at it you know, in a realistic way. Um, and the thing to understand is that message wasn't entirely or even largely for the suburbs. Uh, the, the Republican vote in the suburbs was better than in 2000, but it wasn't so overwhelmingly increased that it would have shifted uh, the election. The key thing in Virginia was a massive boost in rural voting for Glenn Yalkin. In fact, in some counties, he actually was winning by like 80-20 margins, these huge, huge victories bigger in some places than Trump's victories. So it just and, makes me wonder if uh, yeah. the idea then is going to be take the Trump playbook, but because he's kind of toxic now because of the January 6th riot, just not mention him explicitly. In fact, even disavow him, but emulate him in other ways. Absolutely. That's that's precisely it. And and send uh, signals that are aimed at appealing to the base while then uh, also having sort of an image that is softer, more more mild, if you will. And, and the playbook on this wasn't written now, it's written 50 years ago. After George Wallace, right. a segregationist, ran for president and got a very substantial vote, winning a number of Southern states in 1968, Richard Nixon uh, developed the Southern strategy. Now, the Southern strategy didn't use overtly racist language as Wallace had, but it was, you know, like dog whistles on steroids, right? It was, it was sending signals that made it absolutely clear to the base and to uh, folks who might be inclined to be, you know, to have been Wallace voters or potentially, uh, that the Republican Party was where they needed to go. And so in those days, you heard, you know, a lot of talk about forced busing and things like that. In the 1980s, Reagan uh, came along and, you know, talked a lot about welfare and things of that nature. Then in the 90s, you had a lot of talk about crime. There's always, there's always something that they, they go to to try and, and build this sort of modernized version of the old Nixon Southern strategy. The latest tool is an attack on critical race theory. And you will see a lot of Republicans adopt it. But uh, I will caution that, that they will only succeed or they will only get much traction on it if Democrats don't effectively counter it. And that's what happened in Virginia. There wasn't an effective counter. On the other hand, in a number of school board races across the country, where uh, grassroots activists fought back and, and specifically said, look, this isn't, what, what they're saying here isn't uh, something that you should be afraid of. You should want history to be taught in an honest way that makes connections to contemporary policies. And they, in these school board races, a number of them, they pushed back on this and progressives won. They, de they defeated efforts to recall and remove school board members uh, and to otherwise, you know, meddle in politics in this way in Connecticut, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and other states. So there's a way to, to counter this. It's just the Democrats, especially in Virginia, um, did a lousy job of it.
Let's talk about Trump, too, before we get to the infrastructure uh, bill. Uh, Trump was promising to make an announcement about his 2024 campaign until after the midterm election. Um, and he looks like he is getting ready to do that. He, of course, will spin anything and everything as a win for him because that's his way. Yeah, that's uh, what he so, does. But, of course, the Republican <laughs> Party, you know, has just had this, uh, let's just say, difficult relationship with uh, Trump. And there is a new book out. Um, what do you make of, I mean, I, I'm loath to talk, talk about Trump, but the fact is that he is there and he still retains a pretty significant base. So what do you expect to come from him? Oh, sure. I, I mean, you're absolutely right to raise it and absolutely right to be frustrated by the reality that you have to. Um, so three simple concepts. Number one, Donald Trump is running for president of the United States in 2024. He hasn't announced it. He's clearly running. He's already he's been to Iowa. He's going to the battleground states. Uh, he's clearly, uh, you know, inserting himself into these races across the country. And and there's a, there's very little doubt that this is what he wants to do. It's possible something might, you know, an indictment, a criminal indictment, or something might interrupt the process. But uh, at this point, that's that's where he's headed. Number two, uh, if indeed he runs, he will be the Republican nominee. You can talk all you want about Glenn Youngkin and stuff like this. The reality is that in the Republican Party at the base across the country, Trump is the man. He's the defining person. And uh, yeah, he'll be the nominee. It's, it's silly to think otherwise. And then number three, uh, in 2024, if indeed he is the nominee, no matter what happens on election night, he will claim victory. And hmm. that it becomes the, the daunting, unsettling prospect of the moment we are in, because if in 2022, in the midterm elections, Republicans uh, advance their position in Congress if they win the House and Senate, and if they win more state houses across the country, especially in battleground states, uh, they're going to set up a circumstance that will make it much easier for Trump to play out the game that he played in 2020. And so imagine a January 6th where you've got Republicans in clear control of both chambers of Congress and then think about what the prospects are in, in that circumstance. That's why we should be concerned. That's why we should look at the midterms with you know, a very, very open eyes as to what's at stake. It isn't just control of, of Congress or control of the Biden agenda. This is very possibly a, a question of where this Congress will be positioned in a contested 2024 presidential election. And, and so then it's also really critical for us to talk about how the Democratic Party and its various factions viewed the results of the midterm elections. Um, this takes us back to the mainstream media characterizations of the night, which often reflect the centrist or conservative wing of the Democratic Party. How have those centrists, those people in particular who have opposed the most progressive aspects of the Build Back Better agenda, how did they interpret the results of the midterm elections terribly you know i mean it's it, predictably uh i think the classic example is abigail spandarger who is a member of congress from virginia um clearly on the more centrist more corporate side of, of a lot of the debates uh and her, her reaction was well america didn't elect joe biden to the fdr and so it was this message that that the problem was biden has gone too far that Biden has been too progressive, that Biden has you know, tried to implement too bold an agenda on economic and social and racial justice and the climate and, and all these other issues. 
Well, that's just not the case. I mean, it's, it's absolutely false. Uh, the problem is that Biden, who, to his credit, has adopted some of the, the policies that, that Bernie Sanders and others put forward, um, it modified them, you know, kind of uh, not put as much money in as progressives would have wanted, but, but accept some of the basic concepts. And that there was general agreement in the Democratic Party to do this. Manchin and Cinema have tripped it up and slowed it down. The reason the Democrats uh, were in trouble, frankly, uh, in these midterms, among the many reasons, but one of the perhaps the top line one is that the Democrats in Congress had dithered from July to August to September to October to November on an agenda that they had laid out in the summer and that A, was very popular and B, uh, they should have been able to pass because they have majorities in the House and Senate and they hold the White House. And so it's an image of the Democrats as not being able to govern effectively. And the problem there, or the thing that, that creates that image, is um, the fact that, that centrists are, are, you know, tripping it up, are slowing it down, are, are refusing to go along with, with what is, again, a very popular and, and very necessary agenda. And yet the centrists are spinning it to say the problem isn't them, the problem is the progressives, the problem is going too far to the left. And as you well know, Sonali, the media in this country uh, tends toward a, a policing of the Democratic Party. Uh, it, it's very, very clear that a lot of major media in this country didn't like Trump, and they were quite outspoken, you know, quite clear on CNN and other MSNBC, of course, and you'd see a lot of criticism of Trump. But when you get to actually breaking with, uh, you know, a status quo politics, you get to actually talk about doing some bigger or bolder things, then you often see the media kind of jump in with these so-called centrists, uh, amplify their messages, and push the Democratic Party to be more cautious. And that's that's clearly what you're seeing right now as a reaction to the, the off-year elections. And so then how has that impacted these two bills? It was that the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill were tied together and progressives fought very hard. In the end, a lot of progressives did vote for the infrastructure bill, even though it was decoupled from the Build Back Better bill, including Pramila Jayapal, who has been a leader on this. Uh, six uh, Democrat, progressive Democrats in the House, uh, including AOC, voted no. And it was interesting to see some House Republicans join with Democrats. So what's your assessment of, of what played out on Friday with these two bills? Well, um, look, uh, the majority of progressives in the House, uh, in fact, all progressives in the House have been the, the strongest backers of Biden's agenda at this point. They've actually done more to promote Biden's agenda and to try and push it forward than Biden himself has. And so it's not surprising that, you know, when you get to this critical juncture, a lot of them did vote for it. A handful, and the ones you've mentioned, voted against, uh, I think, largely to send a signal that they were very, very concerned about uh, the status of negotiations, frankly, about the uh, disrespect of the progressive position by, uh, you know, the not not the administration so much as the Democratic Party in general. This this you know willingness to uh, cut these bills down in size, uh, to go back on promises and commitments, you know, to undermine the process again and again and again. And so I, I think you saw two streams going on here from progressives, you know. Some folks were saying, yeah, we've been fighting for this for a long time. We're at a point where we think we've got a deal. Let's 
you know, let's power through and do this. And another group saying, hold it, you know, this is going too far. At the end of the day, it, it didn't matter that a group, a small group of progressives voted no, because you did in fact have 13 Republicans who came over and voted yes. Most of these Republicans who voted yes were from the Northeast, particularly New York State. Uh, and they're, they're frankly infrastructure Republicans. They're people who wanted, uh, desperately wanted a lot of spending on roads, bridges, uh, you know, public transportation, all the other things that were a part of this, this bill. And uh, Pelosi, you know, Nancy Pelosi knew she had, she was gonna get some of those votes. So it was possible to, to lose a few progressives in this, in this circumstance, they'll go forward. But I, I would counsel that there should be a deep concern here uh, because those progressives who voted no did so out of a sincere concern that um, this deal isn't going to be closed, that this thing isn't going to come together in the end. And, and that's still a real risk. I, I think, there, I think there's, there's legitimacy in that concern because uh, what you've got to do now is to get this Build Back Better, the social infrastructure bill, the, the social welfare bill, um, you know, through the House, over to the Senate, and then through Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, who will almost certainly demand some shifts, some changes in it. And then you bring on, on it top back of what they've over. already demanded. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you bring it back over to the House once more. And, and so uh, this is still a very perilous place. I, I, I would caution that uh, this process is far from, from concluded. Uh, and while they've got the infrastructure bill through, the, the physical infrastructure bill, you know what progressives have been fighting for uh, is has not been delivered, and and people should be concerned, and they shouldn't be just concerned from a standpoint of progressives versus you know centrists or things like that. This isn't a game. I mean, this is reality in people's lives. These are these are programs that are, are desperately needed in order to address you know some fundamental issues in this country, and there's a political component to it. The the history of Democrats in office. Uh, in the first term of a new Democratic president is that if they pull their punches, if they don't deliver in a big way, in a way that really people can really feel, people know that something major has changed, uh, you tend to see a drop off in turnout and midterms tend to go very badly, as they did for Bill Clinton in 1994, as they did for Barack Obama in 2010 and 2014. So, I mean, this is, this is a, I think, a dangerous, perilous place for the Democratic Party, and to my view, the progressives who are objecting and raising concerns uh, are are actually, you know, they're doing the party a, a favor. It's just a question of whether the party is going to listen to them. Right, and we also see the Congressional Black Caucus playing a role, right? It was sort of a deal that they offered uh, last week that helped Nancy Pelosi um, decouple these two bills and give her that sort of uh, mandate, I suppose, that she felt she had to move forward. Can you explain what happened there? And, and, and what does that mean for the role of the Congressional Black Caucus? The Congressional Black Caucus is a much larger caucus than it, than it was in the past. And so you've got a diversity within it. You have uh, some very progressive members. You have some, some centrist members. You have some members who are more corporate, some members who are uh, more anti-corporate. And, uh, and so it, that's, Pelosi was working with some leadership of the Congressional Black Caucus that, uh, that was committed to going forward, that wanted to go forward on the infrastructure bill. And uh, 
committed, you know, obviously to, to give support that was was desired. Uh, look, there's there's a lot of, of uh, sub-negotiations going on here on funding of historic historically black colleges, um, of uh, also, you know, particular social programs and particular initiatives. And so, it, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the Congressional Black Caucus, and I understand that. But I think there should also be a recognition that kind of every caucus, the Progressive Caucus, uh, various other caucuses, they're all in play at this point. And they're all, you know, going to Pelosi and talking to Pelosi about, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that we get, you know, some of our priorities met, um, you know, what role are we gonna play in all this? Pelosi's in a, in a complicated position because uh, she is, I think she's very clear on the fact that the Democratic majority in the House is incredibly endangered that there is a huge risk that Democrats are going to lose control of the House of Representatives. And um, she is trying uh, to counter that, you know, trying to uh, do what I think is actually, and this is, well, I'm often critical of Pelosi. I think in this case, she's actually trying to do something that is quite logical. And that is- Maybe because she sees the, problem, the writing on the wall, <laughs> finally. Yeah, exactly. The problem is if Democrats don't deliver, they're going to lose, yeah. right? It's a simple thing. And so she is looking to make deals to- to get people's votes so that she can, in fact, deliver, right? She can pass things. And, and I don't think there's any doubt that she's sincere in wanting to do that uh, for practical political purposes on top of perhaps believing in some of these. And, and you know, so I, I, my sense now is that the big challenge will be in that kind of uh, getting to an actual vote on the Build Back Better uh, agenda, the program in the House and getting enough Democrats together to do it because she won't have those Republicans. She won't have that cushion of 13 Republicans coming over once this comes to a vote and then moving it over to the Senate, moving it there quickly uh, and getting some, again, quick action out of the Senate that can actually move a bill, right? That can that can get something to, to Biden's desk. And, you know, I hate my sense of having watched this thing now for six months, better part of six months, is that there's still a long way from getting all the pieces in place. And I think for Pelosi, that is a, a really, it's a scary prospect because I think she does know politics. I think the same is true for Schumer. They would like to get something done. But, um, you know, Manchin and Cinema and some of these, you know, so-called centrists in the House uh, are you know, they're feeling their, their power at this point. They know that they're absolutely necessary to, to get things passed. And their resistance is really becoming a huge problem uh, for Democratic leadership, as well as for the Biden administration. And the clock is ticking to next year's midterm elections, which could see Democrats lose control of one if not both houses. Um, and then of course, it's a straight shot to 2024 and it's sort of terrifying to look ahead. A lot hangs in the balance. John, it's always a pleasure to have you on and have your analysis. Thank you so much for joining me. Honored to be with you. Great pleasure to talk to you. My guest has been John Nichols. He is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine, host of the podcast Next Left, contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times, and associate editor of The Capital Times. He's also the author of numerous books, including Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse and The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website at risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. 
and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.